Hello, and welcome to Stuff Mama Forgot to Tell You. I'm Monica Francois Marcel, a Gen X founder, entrepreneur, and baseball mom based in Chicago. And I believe that if we're very lucky and work very hard, life will be long and it will be messy. So to help us with the mess and provide tips for longevity and joy in what lies ahead, each episode, I'm borrowing either the mother of a friend or a trusted mentor that I greatly admire. This is a diverse group of women who've been there and done that, and you are going to love their stories. My own mom isn't here anymore, so the stuff these women share is precious to me, and their cross-generational pearls of wisdom are just what we all need. I'm so excited for you to join us, so let's jump in. you and I am so so excited to have Ann Weisberg here. She doesn't even know it, but she has been kind of a um I don't want to put mentor on you and because you didn't sign up for that, but you're certainly someone that I've turned to and watched their career and you've been so generous to me the times that we've had a chance to chat. So I'm just thrilled to have you. So hello and welcome. Thank you. And I, I am thrilled to be here and I feel you know it's a mutual admiration Aww. society. Definitely Monica so I remember our first long conversation uh, in one of your offices in Manhattan, and I left there just on cloud nine. Um, so understood, you know, and, and um, seen. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I need more people like Anne in my life. I got to keep her. I got to keep her in, in the circle somehow. Well, this is you. one way to do it. Yeah. I thought of you in that way immediately, right? Yeah. So lucky us. Okay, so with that, as you know, a little bit about our project. The idea is that we are recognizing that as we head into our best years, you know, our 50s or 60s or 70s, that we're active. we got a lot going on. And especially with the way that medicine is, many of us are going to live, you know, into our 90s and who knows beyond that. And I, for one, I think probably like you, am ready for it. And I'm also ready to make sure that I do it well. And I know that in my case, uh, there weren't a lot of people giving me advice about this phase of my life, right? And so part of the idea and the goal here is to connect with women that are either in the middle of it themselves, you know, going through some transitions and making some decisions and pivoting and or, you know, collecting what they've done so far and deciding where they want to go next with reflections. So this is just a conversation in that direction. And I am grateful that you're joining us. And I know that me, like many, are really looking forward to just getting to know you a little bit more in that context and just hearing some of what you had to share, knowing that there's going to be some nuggets of wisdom in there. So let's get started. Okay. My first question, Anne, is I just want you to go back to um, a little bit of your origin story, right? I want you to think about when you were a little girl yourself and uh, you were coming into the world and you were growing up. Tell us a little bit about what your life was like when you were little, how you started. And then in particular, I'd love to know if you remember what, if anything, um, was the world or maybe your mom telling you that they wanted you to be or what they wanted for you? Um, was that similar to what you knew you wanted for yourself? Did you know what you wanted for yourself? Just talk to us a little bit about the early Anne and her formation. Okay. Well, um, I would say I had a pretty unusual childhood in several respects. Um, my mom was American Jewish. My father was Italian, raised Catholic, and they met in Caracas, Venezuela, where I was really? born. <laughs> 
know that. Oh. Right. So my first language was Spanish. My father was a sort of serial entrepreneur, always looking for kind of the newest way to make a quick buck. My mom was a really adventurous soul who was um, way ahead of her time. So she had just graduated from the Yale School of Architecture as the only woman in her class from what we know. And um, this was a class of 1950 and had started work at an architectural firm in New York City. They had gotten this big project to do in Caracas and the legend in our family is that the <laughs> office leader said, like, who wants to go to Venezuela? And my mom raised her hand, even though at that time she was not married, you know, single, knew no Spanish, a woman and a Jew, which I don't know if that how much that mattered in those days. And that the only way to get to Venezuela was to take a boat. It took two weeks to get there. So that kind of tells you a lot about it does. <laughs> my mom um, and my parents divorced when I was nine. So that's kind of the okay. second really big thing that you need to know. So my, my mother was a huge, huge presence in my life. Um, my father moved back to Italy, so I almost never saw him. And in those days, calling long distance was very expensive. <laughs> And getting to Italy took forever, so (laughs) we didn't go very often, and I didn't speak to him much. So he wasn't really there in my life that much. Okay. But my mom was, and, you know, she was really my role model. She worked my whole life. She loved her work, and and she always said to me and my sister, I don't really care what you do, but I really hope you love what you do. Like, you should love what you do. Wow. Um. Because it wasn't easy for her. Mm -hmm. I think it really mattered that she loved what she did. It helped her put up with the kind of blatant, literally blatant discrimination she faced. So she was told point blank that she was making less than the men in her Mm -hmm. office because she wasn't the primary breadwinner, even though she actually was the primary and sole breadwinner. Wow. That kind of unfairness always stuck with me. It didn't really matter so much to her, frankly. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of women that I, whom I've talked with, you know, pioneers, the first women to do X, Mm -hmm. Y, or Z, they were just grateful to be let in. They just didn't pay that much attention to, you know, whether they were really getting full access to everything. Right. So I will say, again, like we were not poor, she was very well educated mm-hmm. um, and she had a, a good job, but we were not rich right? because architects still don't make that much money. Right. And she was literally getting paid less than the men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we led a very full life um, without a lot of wealth. Let's just say that. So money, it was never that big a deal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what was important to me and honestly... I think I do get this from her, but I'm not sure. It's, I, I don't know where I get this from, but what was always important to me from a very early age was to make a difference, to have okay. an impact. And maybe that's partly to be remembered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that is. 
like I think I've always thought about legacy, like from a very early age, way before. I mean, that's just having an impact and making a difference has always been core to who I am. And in the beginning, so even in high school, I really wanted to make that difference around the environment. Ah. I started the first newspaper drive in my high school, and then I only applied. So I was a very good student. Not surprised. (laughs) And um, I could have applied to all of the, you know, Ivies, Mm -hmm. but I refused to do that. I only applied to ag school at Cornell because I wanted to be an environmentalist, and that meant learning about natural resources, I thought. So I went to the ag school at Cornell, and it turned out it was not anything like that. I was learning about how to count board feet of lumber in a forest, and I'm like, that's not what I'm here for. So I dropped out of college. This is, remember, my adventuresome streak. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Countercultural to some extent. So I dropped out of college in 1977 to go work in solar energy during the first energy crisis. (laughs) Wow. As a VISTA volunteer, and that's where you and I made that first connection. Because I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I was was a VISTA volunteer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow. In the very early days of solar energy work, which which really got a start in the late 70s because of the energy crisis. There was a lot of money and a lot of effort being put into developing alternative sources of energy. I did finally go back to college. (laughs) I went and got my degree at Berkeley in political economy of natural resources. And not to cut you off, but we have that in common too, because I got my master's at Berkeley in urban planning. So that's right. Exactly. So I'd forgotten that. So um, Mm -hmm. political economy of natural resources, only Berkeley would have a major like that already. Like, (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Right. Now we're talking 1980, and then I applied to law school, and I ended up at Harvard Law School, where I graduated in 1985, five months pregnant. Wow. So the next big transition or inflection point for me was going into the working world. I mean, I had been working, right? I'd been, uh, I was a VISTA for a year, and then I was on the staff of the New Mm -hmm. Mexico Solar Energy Association for two years. I knew what it was to be in a workplace, but when I came out of law school five months pregnant, I really was not ready for the bias um, that I experienced as a working mom. Yeah. Um, And that is really what led me to a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the end. I did practice law for five years at a small environmental and land use firm, but ended up pivoting to diversity and inclusion through the opportunity to write uh, my first book, which is called Everything a Working Mother Needs to Know, which I co-wrote with another woman I had been practicing with. And um, it was a guide for women who have careers and are starting families on all the issues they face at work, because there was nothing out there then. It came out in 1994. You know, you could go to it to a bookstore, which is what people used to do, 
<laughs> right. To get to buy a book about like what was happening to your body when you got pregnant and what to expect, like what to expect when you're expecting. Right. Hit the bestseller list the same uh -huh. year everything a working mother needs to know came out. Wow. But there's not one word in what to expect when you're expecting about work. Not one word. That's really shocking. And yet not at yeah. the same time. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful concept, right? That's such an important work. And then, and that book has helped so many people. So nothing against right. it. And yet it leaves off entirely, right? This whole other aspect. Wow. Right. And my mother had died before I started law school. Oh boy. So again, like she was my role model. I knew I just, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't work, but I didn't have anybody to ask. How do I tell my boss I'm pregnant? <laughs> sure. Um, no. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, and I had never asked her those questions. Like, who's going to ask your mom that? Why would like, you have thought of it? Right. You know, when you know? you're a teenager or in college or whatever, you just don't do that. Right. So I just had to figure that out for myself. And that was the genesis of the book, <laughs> much like I, what you're doing now. <laughs> well, can I ask you, so how did you figure that out? And, and to make a connection in terms of what I'm doing now. So um, my mom passed away uh, about six months before I got married. Mm. Right. And so things that I didn't ask her that I wish I'd asked her were things like, you know, how to be a partner and also have this life. Right. Um, how to be all these things that I am and, you know, do it, you know, with someone else and how not to lose yourself and all that. And all, and I never, it never occurred to me that I was ever going to need to know any of that stuff, you know, but it, I, I didn't ask her any of that stuff. And it's only built through the years of all the things I wish I'd asked her, you know, she did these really great things and just balance them. And I look back on her with awe. Anyway, so back to you. So how did you find out? How did you figure out? And I think this is um, endemic of the broader culture, right? That there, uh -huh. that there are no paradigms, that there's yeah. still this question about like, and this tug of war about like what, you know, what you're supposed to be. And, and this, we don't have role models in the broader culture. So we really have to fall back on, you know, the role models in our own lives, which, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not saying like we wouldn't do that anyway. When we were writing what to, uh, you know, what uh, every working mother needs to know, like, first of all, there were very few women on TV who worked <laughs> and were moms. Right, right, right. Um, right. The Co Bill Cosby show, his wife, which that's right, I yeah. without a TV, so I can't name names. But like, you know, his wife was supposed to work, but all you ever saw her was in the kitchen. So like this idea of like it being normal, it wasn't normal. It wasn't normal. And it kind right. of still isn't. Right. All these years later. So uh, Carol Buckler was my co is my co-author. And we, we just interviewed women. We we put yeah. out we put so we put little notices in like professional journals. I, all kinds of professions. Like, we're doing this book. If you want to be interviewed, let us know. I mean, so we just asked a bunch of women, and uh, it was it was so much fun writing that book. It was amazing. It was a life changing experience. And so then I decided that I wanted to do this work going forward. I didn't want to practice law, <laughs> and that's what I did for the next twenty plus years. 
And so in those next 20 plus years, and we're, we're, we're truncating because there's a lot of, if we, if we don't know about Anne's um, body of work, I encourage everyone to uh, read it and dive in. And of course, those close to you know all the details of it. I'm curious about when you look back and we'll look forward in a minute. So we, we, we know we got you know many decades ahead, but just as you look back at this point, what are some of the things that you would say you're most proud of? Because I think other people might assume, you know, I remember when I first heard that you were just about some of the work that you had done and this idea of like a, a lattice and women going in and out of work. And I was like, oh, these frameworks are so helpful. And things. so there's things that I'm proud of, you know, that you contributed. But when you look at, at your own work, um, and it might be personal, it might not be a work thing, but what are you really proud of that you, as you reflect? Yeah, so I think, so um, I've written two books, um, co-written. Um, and the second one was with my boss at Deloitte. I was running the Deloitte Women's Initiative. We were taking a really hard look at workplace flexibility, which, of course, is a very current topic <laughs> um, as, you know, organizations struggle with how to blend remote work with on in-person yeah. work and all that. Mm-hmm. But Deloitte already, and this was in um, the mid-2000s, was very good at that day-to-day flexibility. In fact. The entire team I worked on was remote. Like I was the only person in New York. My boss was in California and I had team members literally everywhere in the U.S. And what we had come to realize was that day-to-day flexibility was not the same as career path flexibility. And Mm -hmm. for me as a working mom, what I really needed in addition to the day-to-day flexibility was that ability to be able to flex my career so that I didn't have to be going full speed all the time through Mm -hmm. my 30s and 40s when my kids were growing up. And that led to the second book, which is called Mass Career Customization. Because what we wanted to do was to take an institutional look at how to institutionalize that career path flexibility. That book came out in 2007, and I do, I do feel most proud of that work because I think it did a couple things. It did sort of add to the whole flexibility conversation this idea of career path flexibility mm-hmm. that was really important to people, um, that people were already doing. Like we, it was, when you really looked at it, Nobody, very, very few people's careers were going in a straight line, you know, in the same direction at the same pace over 30 years. Right. So it just, it reflected people's lives better and it was actually better for the institution. And again, to fill the void of policy and norms and everything that still exists in this country, we were trying to make the point that it is actually better for everybody, for the institution and the individual. If you map the way careers are built to people's lives. So I'm really proud of that because it, it changed the conversation. And somebody said this to me recently, which, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I even recognize this. It also said that diversity, equity, inclusion is a systemic issue. 
it's not an individual, you know, or programmatic issue. It's really about changing systems. And structures. And structures. Yeah. And I have always taken that systemic approach to the work that I do. You know, I'm going to pause you really quickly because I'm going to make a connection that you can tell me that you totally disagree with me. But um, so two things. One, you know, I'm an I'm a engineer by training, a research engineer, and um, I'm always looking at systems, right? I always see systems and structures and, and I talk all the time about how we can absolutely approach things individually. We absolutely can, right? But if the system doesn't support it, it doesn't matter how great the individual is, they can't make it work, right? And then vice versa, you can have an amazing system. And then I've been with organizations and clients and things where they, the individual has decided to ignore the system, right. right? And try to override it. So you need both, right? And what I'm, what I'm noticing, and I'm wondering if you've ever thought about this, do you think that your early environmental training, your science training, mm -hmm. your um, early work just helped you to see this set of problems differently? And I say that because I think so. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put myself on a limb and wonder if part of the reason why you were able to see the problem so differently was because of a, you have that science training and that legal training, which helps as opposed to some people that come to it with kind of different disciplines. Do you think there's a connection there or am I reaching? I totally do. I was trained to see ecosystems. Yes. And any organization yes. is an ecosystem. Yeah. Right. Nobody exists by themselves at work. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. And um, and everything is interconnected. I really believe that. And in fact, the College of Natural Resources at Berkeley has a magazine at, for alums, and they they actually interviewed me when I was the initiatives direct uh, women's initiatives director at Deloitte, and and that's how we framed it. I was like, well, first of all, why would you want to interview me? Because like I'm not doing anything like what most graduates of the College of Natural Resources do. But, you know, we we talked about it in that way. It's just a different kind of ecosystem, the workplace. I totally believe that. Sometimes people, like, they hear my, my career, like, my, my training, my career path. My engineering friends are like, you do what for a living now? Right. right? They don't understand it at all, right? And then um, the people that know me now, I was telling someone the other day, I was, I was geeking out in a fun way. I was remembering that in uh, 1990, you know, the census data came out. And I was at the U.S. Department of Transportation, and my job in 1990, uh, gosh, what was it, two, 93, was to help make sense of the census data to plan transportation systems and environments and all these things. And someone was like, you did what? And I was like, oh, I, I've lived many lives, you know. But to me, they all make sense because they're all, they're all connected, you know. Tell us a little bit of what you're doing right now because you've kind of come full circle a little bit now, right? This is where I am. Right, exactly. So – I, I had two more kids after the one I was pregnant with at law school. And um, I was at a dinner with a bunch of other diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals, like maybe two years ago now. Oh, no, it was before the pandemic. So it must have been like at least two and a half years ago. <laughs> and we all went around the room to answer the question, like, what's keeping you up at night? Everybody was like talking about, well, like, this, my CEO doesn't, isn't really as committed as to DE&I, and, uh, you know, I can't get executives to do this or that. And I had this aha moment at that dinner, and I'm like, what keeps me up at night is that my kids don't want to have kids because of climate change. And they all looked at me like, what are you talking about? But that's when I realized, like, that's actually 
what keeps me up at night now. Like, yeah. you know, I'm Jewish and this very strong sort of value in the Jewish tradition about your children's children. Everything we do is for your children's children. Right. And I'm like, and remember, like, to me, this idea of having a legacy and leaving an having an impact on the world has been foundational from my, from my childhood. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I gotta get back to that. <laughs> I gotta get back to doing work around the climate because that is what my children are worried about most. And I also see it as a social justice issue and yes. an economic justice issue. Yes. And that's why I've been in this space for as long as I have, because diversity, equity, inclusion is a social justice issue and mm -hmm. an economic justice issue. Because the, mm -hmm. the way that, you know, and Martin Luther King, like his March on Washington was about civil rights and jobs. Right. It was all about jobs. It was as much mm -hmm. about jobs. And we forget that. Like, how are you going to get people to participate fully in, you know, creating wealth for themselves through right. jobs? So I had this epiphany, you know, and then COVID happened and it was very hard to leave work and leave my team. And <laughs> we did a lot to sort of, we became, and, and I will say, Monica, and I think you would agree that people doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work in organizations are really the culture carriers because like, that's where you know whether the culture's working the way it should or not mm -hmm. is about it is in that space like you're the leading edge of that so we ended up like being the carrier cultures we built this whole um system of uh what we called colleague connect circles overnight for the entire firm i was working in a law firm at this point for every all the lawyers so that they could stay connected to each other right so there was a lot to do, but eventually I did decide to step back and I turned 65 in February of this year. Congratulations. Thank yeah. You. And given, you know, my experience with my mom and my father, who also died pretty young, I decided, you know, I'm healthy. I have the financial resources. I'm going to stop doing that and try to pivot to bringing everything that I've learned around DEI to the clean energy economy so that women and people of color can benefit from the tremendous economic opportunities that are being created as we speak, especially now after the Inflation Reduction Act. Because as you well know, just because you're a solar energy company or just because you're a wind energy company or just because you're in, you know, sustainable finance doesn't mean that you're going to make opportunities equally available to right. everyone. That right. doesn't happen by itself. No, it that doesn't. It has to it's be very intentional and, planned, and we yeah. have an opportunity to make that happen now. 
You know, I'm thrilled that you're doing this and um, you're really inspiring me in many ways. We're going to have many offline conversations about this topic because okay. uh, I definitely want to get into the weeds of what you're doing and see how maybe I can be a part of it and learn more. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I agree. Like, I, I would, yeah, yeah, I'm all over that. Mm -hmm. And I also want to ask you, so what, because some people, and you and I started to have this conversation a little while ago, some people when they're 65, you know, traditionally have done a, a proper retirement. Right. Um, my dad, when he turned, I think it was 65, 66, you know, had a proper full on retirement. The plan with him and my mom was that um, he was going to work, work, work. And he worked all the time. And she was always, you know, taking care of all these things. And mm -hmm. she was working and but they were going to retire and have all this great life. And then lo and behold, you know, my dad turned like much like you were talking about could happen. You know, my dad turned 65. And um, within just a couple of years, my mom developed a rare kind of kind of cancer and died within a year very unexpectedly and leaving all of us kind of um really shook and my dad all of his plans were, were done right so he, he he did amazing things you know he went on to write some books in retirement and served on a board and you know had life with all my son only knew grandpa as available and accessible because he wasn't on the road all the time and everything so i'm grateful for that but I got to guess that some people maybe were kind of clamoring at you and saying, what do you mean you're doing all this new work again? So I want to know a little bit about your, your thought process. Cause I'm with you. Like I, I love that you're doing this and I see you doing this for, for decades. I don't know. I want to put, I don't want to put pressure on you, but what was it like to decide to do this new set and, and not step back? So I wanted to get back to being involved in sort of climate activism, uh -huh. but I also did not want to work full time. I've kind of, constructed, I would say, a portfolio of volunteer projects. Okay. That's what I'm doing. Um, but again, because I have the financial means to do that. Yes. And right. I don't take that for granted for one second. <laughs> so I'm doing a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and I can tell you what that is to give you a little flavor of it. But to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out, like, is that enough? Interesting. Do I want another full-time job doing this? Do I just need one project? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm still working on it. What's your day like now? So, for example, like, do you find compared to when you were officially retiring from your, you know, from your job, has your day shifted? Talk a little bit about, like, you know, how you spend your. We'll leave weekends out of it, assuming that you're not doing this. Maybe you are on weekends, but what's a typical day like now, and how has it changed from where you were? you know, a year ago. Yeah. So, um, so I would say the biggest change has been that I don't have demands on my time for a whole day at a time. I have some demands on my time. So I have some standing meetings. So for okay. example, I'm the senior advisor in residence to women of renewable industries and sustainable energy, otherwise known as RISE. That's a pro bono position. I have a standing meeting with the executive director. I've taken on a couple, of, you know, I've done some projects with her, but okay. I really mostly serve as an advisor to her. Okay. I have another standing meeting every week with the woman with whom I co-chair a circle at my synagogue that's focused on climate activism. Wow. So love that. <laughs> yeah, so there so there was a, a relatively young organization called Dayenu, a Jewish call to climate action that was started okay. about 
two and a half years ago by a rabbi. And their model is a lot like 350.org um, and Sunrise where they, they use like community-based, and in this case, it's a synagogue-based circles to create a groundswell of Jewish activism in climate. And so okay. um, my co-chair and I meet once a week to just to plan our meetings. And we've also started the climate action committee of our shul. So it's like a committee of the, of the congregation. So there's yep. a circle and um, there's a, com a committee. And so that's been a beautiful way to integrate two different parts of my life. I also am spending a lot more time in our home in Connecticut. It's okay. this little town called Sherman. And so I've, I've gone on the Sherman Conservation Commission. Oh. Um, so. Yeah, you're the theme, right? Which is that you're, you, you're, the focus is the same, which is environment and climate, right? And yet you're touching on different parts of your life that you like. Right. That's a very interesting approach, Anne. Yeah, and, I, and, and it's a way for me to build community. Yeah. these different aspects of my life. And, and I do think, again, I, like I, I think just personally beyond having an impact, Building community has always been important to me, and uh, mm -hmm. um, I, maybe that goes back to my training in uh, natural resources and this idea that when you know nobody can do anything alone, <laughs> the, the the you know the planet doesn't do anything you know without. Like, I mean, everything is connected to everything else, so. Yeah, it's a way of integrating the different aspects of my life through this common theme. I think that's a great way to put it, Monica. So thank you for that clarity. Well, it's just so clear to me, and it's so exciting. To, and, and again, what a roadmap, right? Um, again, I, I like mental models. I like to see uh, people make fun of me, like, why do you need all these external people to tell you what to do? And I'm like, hey, I, I, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for ideas. I'm looking for pathways, right. you know, I'm looking to be able to envision what possibilities are, especially these next decades are so important. Right. I want to get it right. You know, I don't right. want to be unfulfilled. I, I want to, like you're saying, I want to continue to have impact. I'm not sure how yet. Right. So this is so great. What a great framework. Can I ask you, so with your, with your kids. And so let what, me just say, you know, yeah, because I want to also say that besides, you know, the contributions I've made, such as they are to my field, <laughs> I also really do feel like my greatest accomplishments are my kids. And, um, you know, everybody says that probably. <laughs> um, and and, and, and everybody should say that. It's like right. the, the most amazing thing to be able to say that. So I'm not taking that away from anybody, but for me, sure. I really do feel that way. And and now I more and more feel like my legacy is really in the work that they're doing. It's connected, yeah. Yeah, in the work that they're doing. And uh, it's so interesting. So I have three kids. My oldest is a scientist and is um, okay. back in school getting her PhD in marine ecology. So trying to understand how fish are responding to climate change. My middle child is a farmer. <laughs> and so like really um, learning how to kind of be self-sufficient and also uh -huh. farm and grow 
food in a sustainable way. And my youngest is a campaign organizer and a political campaign organizer and um, is working for the Working Families Party. Those are three very different aspects of kind of what I have spent my time doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you watched your mom, they've watched their mom, right? And so like you got to see firsthand front row seat, you know, what your mom was capable of. And, and uh, what's, as I do this project, what's so interesting is, you know, there's the meta. I mean, so there's the things that get, that get said, right. In terms of um, how to live your life or, or direction or guidance or input. Right. And then there's also the things that are modeled. And then there's the things that I think that nobody even knows they're modeling. They're just being, and it's so powerful, all three. And I think in your kids, I was going to ask if we were to interview them, are there any certain sayings that you walk around saying a lot, or are there any pearls of wisdom that you're always dropping on them? Is there anything that you have used as kind of like, um, or found yourself leaning on and as, um, I don't know, like philosophies for yourself or ways to kind of organize your, your day, your time, your impact? Well, I've always said to them that you know, they have to be true to themselves. Okay. That's a good one. Because then they won't have any regrets. I don't regret dropping out of college. <laughs> Obviously, it all I wonder, well for me. <laughs> my mouth hit the floor. But, you know, so no one knows this. So I'm going to say this out loud, and this is the first time I've ever said this publicly. My college friends know this. I had a .7 semester. So I should have dropped out of college. Um, and I took five years to graduate because I had a little too much fun. I was trying to figure out who I was. So um, for anyone that knows me professionally, they, they do not know that. And that is not something that, but so finding out that you dropped out makes me feel even that much better, right? So, wow, that's great. So be true to yourself. Yeah. You know, love what you do. Uh-huh. Um, because that makes it all worth it. All the stuff you have to put up. All the, you know, all the hour. Yeah. Everything. Be engaged. I mean, I, you know, we, we connected, um, you and I most recently through the um, work for on executive women for Hillary, which was, you know, like I got involved. I've always been involved in politics. I, I was a trustee of my town, um, you know, which was an elected uh, office. I mean, I've, I've always felt it was really important to be, to vote and yeah. to know what was going on in, politically. My undergraduate degree, just to repeat myself, it was in political economy, political economy. So interesting, yeah. Again, that's all connected. That's the ecosystem that we live in. Right? It pulls it all together. The public sector, the private sector, they're, they're an ecosystem too. And I do feel like my kids are engaged in the world. Yeah. They're, uh, my mom always used to say to me, broaden your horizons. Seek out the unknown. Take a two-week trip to Venezuela on a boat. and uh... no, Go live there. <laughs> and then, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Go live in Venezuela, but take two weeks to get there by boat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the early 50s, 1950s. Yeah, right. That's great. Go explore. Be curious. You know, a curiosity is um, is such a incredible attribute. Or I agree. Gift. Um, you know. Um, yeah. You know, read like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm with you. And my mother's 
mother came out of the depression and saw, you know, what happened to Jews in Europe, even though she was, my grandmother was already here. She was a uh, second generation Jewish okay. of uh, Polish uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants. Okay. She always said, they can never take away your mind. Mm -hmm. So education was a foundational value. And mm -hmm. she was coming at it from that sort of like a scarcity kind of mindset. You know, what can people take away from you? <laughs> That's a real thing. As I said, my mom, we were not poor, but we were not wealthy. But she spent every cent she had on our education. And we mm -hmm. got the best education, you know, that you can pay for. <laughs> and that's always been very important to me. So now if we think about, like, I just want to kind of start to wrap up. I've got a few more questions. So one is, what do you do for, f well, maybe you tell me these things are fun, right? <laughs> but um, I'm often told, you know, get out of your head, Monica. Get out of your head. You're always in your head. You're always in your head. You're always in your head. And I know they're right. And so I'm always trying to figure out, okay, what are other things I can do? And um, so I'm just curious. So for fun or when you're by yourself, because sometimes you are by yourself, Anne, right? So by either for fun or by yourself, what else do you like to do to just kind of um, be in and, decompress or maybe you don't I don't know so first of all I hate being by myself so okay interesting <laughs> so okay nothing by myself one of the things I've really rediscovered is the outdoors and I think that's true for a lot of people during the pandemic yes. right yeah I love yep. being outside yeah I always have and so and especially now in Connecticut like I'm able to you go that outside and then I have mm -hmm. a garden you know, I love to just, you know, hike might be a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, take <laughs> sure on pass in the woods. Um, there we go. And, I like it. And swim in the lake and kayak in the lake and just be outside. It's just, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. it, it really fills my soul um, to be okay. outdoors. And I just find the natural world of which we are a part totally you know, mm -hmm. just constantly amazing. It's just amazing. And I will say one good thing about maybe growing old. I don't know if it has anything to do with my age, but I'm no longer afraid of bugs. I was <laughs> afraid of bugs when I was little. Like, and I would scream and screech and, you know, well, you, if, a, if a fly got near me or whatever. Well, now you're mindful about the rightful place they have in the ecosystem. Yes, That's what it exactly. is. You're thinking about. I don't care. And I'm like. Now you're mindful. With, about... with, with the bees buzzing all around me. And I just don't even notice oh, them anymore. Yeah. Now you're like, they're very important. We need more. We I need see, more. of like, the spiders in the house, I'm like, yay, a spider. <laughs> yeah, we need them. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. And then the other thing I yeah. would say, um, I love to read. Okay. So that, that's always been true. What do you read? Like nonfiction, fiction? Fiction. Fiction. Okay. Any genre? Well, I will say I haven't been so much into science fiction, although I just did finish um, The Ministry of the Future. Okay. I haven't read that. A climate change book, and you really should. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, I heard about that. Yes. I heard about that. Okay. I'll have to read it. But I love story, a really good story. And I think it's really because they help me make sense of the world or, mm -hmm. and, and also like open me uh, and introduce me to all, you know, other worlds. Right. Sure. So, um, and I was also saying that I have, I really love to cook. I really didn't cook at all when I was 
a working mom. I mean, I cooked one night a week, basically on Sundays. <laughs> that was it. Right. Uh, and my mom was a great cook. And for years, it really, um, it really made me feel inadequate that I wasn't cooking like a really gourmet meal for my kids every night, the way she mm -hmm. did it somehow. And then I just had to let go of that. But I rediscovered the joy of cooking and cooking really relaxes me and it's very creative for me. So that's really fun. And then I do do by myself. So there you go. Okay, there you go. That's, that's what I do by myself. And then I will say, again, I grew up without a TV. My mom did not, my mom thought of TV as that vast wasteland as Newt Minow once said. Um, and so she was like, you are not watching TV. Nope, nope, no TV for you. But I think TV is amazing. Today, there are so many great TV shows and I love yeah. watching TV. Me too. I mean, I, I, that's my dirty little secret is how much TV I watch. But I, 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 I'm not going to be ashamed of it anymore. Well, I was going to say, and then I heard um, a friend of mine having listened to this podcast and this very knowledgeable expert on all sorts of things talked very much what you just said. She said, there's no shame in it. Like, it's actually, there's all these things that you gain. And I was like, yes, thank you for validating my uh, my habit because I, I watch, I get a lot out of it. I really do. The stories, I learn a lot. Um, I'm processing, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed. It's just that. It's I just know relaxing that. to me. And, um, it is. No, it's it's essential, you know, yeah. to my well-being. I, I, I'm confident of that. I'm okay with it. I just know that some people are going to be like, wow, really? You watch a lot, you know? So, yeah. But I have two more questions. I want to um, respect your time. So the final two questions are, first for me, so anything else, you know, as you think on your life so far and what you got ahead of you, um, anything that you would leave for me as an idea to think about, um, a piece of advice, a thing not to do, a thing to make sure that I build into my life now so that I've got it, you know, as a foundational piece for the next couple decades or just a tip, anything at all. So I guess what I've come to realize is that this phase of my life is just as messy as every other phase. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was going to be a little bit cleaner. Like I thought it was going to mm -hmm. be a little bit just like less messy but it's not. yeah it's not you know it's okay. messy in terms of the day-to-day -day. it's messy in terms of my emotions you know like sure there's a lot of up and down in this in this aspect too like you know have I accomplished enough like you know am I wasting my life away wow like, like, can I really just spend the next two hours on my porch in this beautiful day wow. reading my book like, you know, so it, 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 it's messy and that's just the way it is. That's life. You know, I think, I don't know why I thought like retirement would be less messy than any other phase of my life, but here it is. I, I am so grateful that you have said this out loud because, uh, I, I needed to hear that, yeah. you know, that's the message I need to hear today. I, I, um, I was using the word messy yesterday. I was talking about how life is going to be long and messy, you know? And, uh, and that's good. That's a good thing. Right. But, um, to hear you say it, it's just the words I need to hear today. And yeah. so, and I think a lot of people hearing it from you, especially so many people respect you. So having you say that out loud is just beautiful. So I love that you use that word in particular. Yeah. Well, so that's one thing I would say. And then my 
Other question for you is for your kids, right? So um, again, my, the, the to bring us back to where we started, the project is called Stuff That Mama Forgot to Tell You, right? Maybe you tell your kids everything. And so maybe you'll say, nope, I got it all. They know everything. Or maybe it's something you want to reinforce. But as you reflect on this conversation and kind of where we've been going, is there anything that you want to make sure that they know that like, yeah, you know, mom said that to me or mom, you know, made that message clear. Is there anything else that you do want to kind of close with? I guess only that, you know, they teach me as much as I've taught them. Um, And I just get so much from being their mom. And I know that they, (laughs) they, they do know that instinctively, but I just want to say that out loud. You're going to make me cry, and we always... All right. Well, thank you with your wisdom, and um, this has been fantastic. What a great treat for me to have you here. Thank you, Mark. I can't wait to keep talking to you, right? We're going to keep this going. We're going to keep this talking. Okay. You All right. So thank you. Yes, 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 yes. And we're, we're going to keep it going, and, and we're, we're going to jump into the messiness together, right? Okay. Awesome. All right. Take care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye.